If you have your Bible, please turn to Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14. It's not the verses printed in your bulletin, uh, which Pastor Drew was going to preach on, but in keeping with Pastor Drew's plan, I wanted to preach to you on peace. And so, here we are, Luke chapter 2. We're going to focus our time on uh, verse 14, 14, and we're going to be unpacking specifically the second half of the angel's refrain. But before we do that, let, let us uh, give ear to the reading of God's holy and inspired Word. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Let us pray. Our glorious God and Father, just as your glory shone around the shepherds, dispelling the darkness, I pray that you illumine our minds to behold your glory in the Scriptures. Aid me, Father, that I may be a faithful herald of your gospel. Dispel the darkness in our hearts that would keep us from rejoicing in your good news of great joy, your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. I need to begin the sermon with a, a quick confession. If you know me, those of you who know me well, this is not a surprise. You've heard this before. But I am a Christmas Scrooge. Shocking, I know. Uh, I'm not fond of all the hubbub, the busyness, the superstition, and the secularization. That's a fun word. Secularization of the holiday season. And perhaps more than one of you, even if you're not a Christmas Scrooge, can sympathize with me when I say that I don't enjoy hearing the same Christmas songs over and over and over again every single year. Yet, in the same breath, I have to confess that some of my very favorite songs are Christmas hymns. I wish we would sing them all year round. O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is one of my favorite songs of all time. Now, when we look at Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14, anyone who has spent any amount of time listening to Christmas music at all is familiar with these verses, because these verses have made their way into many Christmas hymns. The refrain from, angels we have heard on high, gloria in excelsis deo, glory to God in the highest. Or the song, hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. You would need to have a heart of stone, and I mean that seriously, to not love such songs. 
They are perhaps as close as we can come to singing along with the angels while here on earth. Now, as I said, I want to focus on the song of the angels in Luke chapter 2, verse 14. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. I would love, if time allowed, to reflect on the first half of that song. It is the part we are most familiar with and have the least questions about. Glory to God in the highest. I can only begin to speculate how different it is for angels to sing that refrain than it is for us. For as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly. We can only know and see the glory of God in a mediated partial way while we live here on earth. But the angels, they stand in the very presence of God. When they sing of the glory of God, they are singing from a wealth of experience and firsthand knowledge of what it's like to behold God's glory, His glory, which we cannot even begin to fathom. As the Scriptures testify, around the throne of God, the seraphim cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And yet, they left the presence of God. They left His glorious presence in order to sing before the shepherds. They sang in response to this good news, that unto us is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This is indeed good news of great joy, and it was also of great interest to the angels. We are told in 1 Peter chapter 1 that the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories, the things that have now been announced to you through those who have preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, these are the things in which angels long to look. They had been waiting eagerly to see Christ's arrival and witness what God would do. So their first half of the refrain is well worth meditating upon. But it is the second half of the refrain that we are going to spend our time on. On earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Let us consider that word peace for a moment. It's a simple enough word. Certainly when we think of peace, we think of the absence of war and conflict. We think of freedom from chaos and disturbances. But if that is all the angels meant, we would be in a sorry state. If all the angels had meant by peace is the absence of war and conflict, then by all accounts, this world has never known peace. Wars and conflicts have circled the globe since the earliest of times, and even now, we anxiously pray for the Lord to intervene between Ukraine and Russia in the ensuing war. And even during those times of relative peace between nations, there are conflicts within our cities, in our towns, and in our homes. If all the angels meant by peace is freedom from chaos and disturbances, then again, by all accounts, this world has never known peace. At best, we experience brief escapes from the chaos of life, like when we take vacation or when I have a cup of coffee and a book to read. Those are brief escapes, but in the back of our minds, we know and remember that life still retains all of its troubles, just waiting to disturb us again when we have to leave our escape. So what kind of peace were the angels celebrating? 
That is the question for this morning. And it is a big question. The biblical understanding of peace really is too big to be conveyed with definitions. It is better caught than taught, and probably best understood through story. This is because peace, in many ways, is one of the most potent motifs and themes throughout the entire biblical narrative. Consider even just the word for peace in the Hebrew, shalom. The word shalom carries so much more weight than the English word peace. Certainly, it includes absence from conflict and wars. Certainly, it includes freedom from chaos and disturbances. But shalom also carries the weighty ideas of completeness, wholeness, rest. This kind of peace is important to the entire biblical narrative and important to the very first verses of Genesis. Even though the word peace is not found in the opening verses of our scriptures, completeness, wholeness, and peace are central and vital themes to our creation story. Our English Bible translates Genesis 1-2 as, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And in the Hebrew, uh, the, the, the way the words are constructed together, it paints this word picture of a dark, chaotic nothingness, and the Spirit of God is hovering over those deep, dark, chaotic waters. Then the Lord conquers that chaos by speaking the word of His power. He says, let there be light, and the chaos ceases. Our God, our ruling Lord and mighty Creator, brought the beginnings of shalom peace. But that first word, let there be light, was not enough. He was not finished. God not only defeated the chaos with the word of His power on that first day, but on every subsequent day, He spoke, He created, He filled the world with good things, and then on the seventh day, He rested perfect fullness, perfect completeness, absence of conflict and disturbances, shalom. And this God of peace wanted to spend that shalom in relationship, so He created our first parents, Adam and Eve. He didn't have to. He was not forced into it. Out of the freedom of His own will, He creates Adam and Eve and gives them Shalom. And so long as they lived in obedience to the Lord of peace, they would have a life of shalom. They would have peace with their God. They would have peace in the world. But we know that the story doesn't end there. The story continues. Adam and Eve sinned against God, and peace on earth was lost. But the Lord of peace was not content to leave the world in that estate. The Lord of peace spoke again, but this time he spoke a promise. He spoke a promise to Eve that a child would come from her who would crush the head of the serpent and set all things right. This child would restore shalom. Later in the narrative of Scripture, God gave the Israelites through Moses the law, which was a means to bless the people with peace. God said in Leviticus 26, verse 6, that if they obeyed Him, He would give peace in the land, peace in the world. Numbers chapter 6, verse 25 through 26 contains Aaron's famous benediction, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you 
and give you peace. Peace with God. Peace in the land, peace with God. And yet, the Israelites did not obey. Shalom was not yet restored. In that time, after Joshua, there were no kings in the land. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Conflict surrounded them, enemies constantly coming against God's people. And it is during that period we read the story of Hannah. Hannah, who prayed earnestly to God to give her a child because she was barren. When the Lord answered her prayer and gave her a son, the son who would grow to be the prophet Samuel, Hannah rejoiced. Hannah prayed. She said in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. In Hannah's prayer, she rejoiced about how the Lord upholds the weak and humbles the strong. And she concluded her prayers by saying, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Her words are prophetic. Remember, there was at this time no king in Israel, and yet she speaks of God's king. She speaks of the horn of Meshuchu. Meshuch. I shouldn't have tried to pronounce Hebrew. <laughs> his Mesheach, his anointed one, his Messiah. Remember, there was no king at this time. Hannah's prayer looked forward to the time when the Lord would end all conflict by defeating his enemies and exalting his chosen king, his anointed one, the Messiah. Later, the Lord would speak to David through the prophet Nathan, and he gives more detail about this promise. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, the Lord promised David that he would give rest to the people of God from all their enemies and raise up an offspring of David, whose throne would be established forever. And so, over time, we see the promise of peace and the promise of the Messiah become wedded. They go hand in hand. And we see this most preeminently and most beautifully in the verses we've been reading together the past two weeks. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Well, by the time of the New Testament, the people of God were eagerly waiting for the arrival of this Prince of Peace. The Jewish people were under the rule of the Romans, living under what is called the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. But this was was not a perfect peace. The people of God writhed under the control of the Romans. Under the Romans, it was not freedom. It was not rest. It was not peace. It was not shalom. They desired desperately the peace of the Messiah, a king from the line of David who would defeat their enemies, which they understood to mean the Romans. It is no surprise then that the long-awaited promises we read of in the Old Testament are echoed so strongly throughout the New Testament. Consider how Mary, just like Hannah, prayed to God after hearing the news of a promised child. 
Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And like Hannah, Mary rejoiced how the Lord upholds the weak and humbles the strong in her prayer. And then there is Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, who gave this prophecy in Luke chapter 1. He said, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, the long-awaited Messiah, the horn of God's anointed, coming from the house of David. It's happening. Zechariah also prophesied that his son John would be a great prophet. He says later that his son would come to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shallow shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. The coming of the Messiah, the coming of peace, the Prince of Peace, the Messiah from the house of David was coming and with him peace, shalom. This is why Luke's gospel belabors the point that David Uh, that Jesus was born from the lineage of David. This is why the angels are sure to mention to the shepherds that unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. That word Christ, Christos in the Greek, is the Greek equivalent for the Hebrew word Messiah. In other words, the angels are proclaiming the good news of great joy, that the long-awaited Messiah, the descendant of David, the Prince of Peace, had been born that night. So, it's no wonder then that the angels are exclaiming, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is what they were longing to see. It was happening. This is why they left God's glorious presence to and to herald this good news. This is why they sang, the Prince of Peace was born, and with him he brings shalom. He would make peace with God and peace in the world. These are the things people have been waiting for since God made that first promise to Eve of the child to come. And this Prince of Peace, we know, is none other than Jesus, the Son of God and the Son of Mary. Jesus, our God, took on flesh, came to be a mighty ruling Lord, and with his rule bring peace. And just as God in Genesis was able to speak a word of power to quell the chaos and darkness, Jesus could speak a word to quell the dark chaotic storm that threatened the lives of his disciples. Jesus could yell out, peace, be still, and creation itself listens. Just as God filled his creation with good things, Jesus filled baskets with food. He healed the sick rose Lazarus from the dead. Jesus was beginning in part to restore the promised shalom, wholeness, completeness, and rest through restoration. In short, the angels sang their refrain, on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased, because Jesus, the Prince of Peace, had been born and was bringing peace with him. Now, most probably, the shepherds understood the messianic message that the angels heralded. And many others who would follow Jesus throughout his ministry likewise had messianic expectations. But they did not fully understand 
what the Messiah and his peace would look like. You see, the Jewish people wanted freedom from the Romans. They wanted to experience the prosperity of the Messianic rule. When David was king, we read that they had peace on all sides. When Solomon was king, gold and silver were as nothing. This is the kind of Messiah and peace that the people wanted. Jesus himself denied that earthly kingship and earthly prosperity were his goals. He even goes so far to say in Luke chapter 12, he says, do you think that I have come to bring peace? No, I tell you, but division. But the people did not understand. Later in his ministry, as Jesus rode into Jerusalem, the people were shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. But as Jesus rode in, we read in Luke 19 that he wept. He wept saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. The eyes of the people were blinded because of sin. They did not understand the things that made for peace. They wanted an earthly king. They wanted earthly prosperity. They wanted earthly peace. The religious leaders feared that if Jesus were allowed to live, the Romans would come and take away everything they had. And so the religious leaders chose Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, over the peace of Christ, Pax Christi. They chose the kingship of Caesar over the kingship of Christ. They chose to see, rather than to see the descendant of David ascend to his throne, they chose to see him lifted up on a cross, bloodied and bruised. And this Jesus, the one who ended the chaotic dark storm by merely speaking a word, he did not end the violent chaos he unjustly suffered. Darkness covered the land, but instead of dispelling it, with a word, he cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And on the seventh day, on Saturday, the Prince of Peace rested, but it was not a rest of perfect shalom, not a rest of completeness, but it was resting in a dark, cold tomb, dead. If that were how the story ended, the coming of the Prince of Peace would not have been good news of great joy. If the story were meant to end with the Prince of Peace lying in a dark tomb, the angels would never have bothered leaving God's glorious presence to sing their beautiful refrain. But the story does not end there. The Prince of Peace's death was not a setback at all but rather part of his plan to bring true peace, shalom, to all the earth, to those with whom he's well pleased. Jesus, as I said, had no intention of being an earthly king. He had no intention of giving merely earthly prosperity. Those were the very things which Satan used to tempt Jesus, to give up his messianic mission. And Jesus would not yield. Jesus came to die. The first promise to Eve spoke of a child who would crush the serpent's head, but the promise also spoke of how the serpent would crush the child's heel or bruise the child's heel. In other words, the plan from the very beginning 
was that the child of promise would die to restore shalom. And then there is another prophecy concerning Jesus. In Isaiah chapter 53, which we are familiar with here at St. Stephen, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. But the Jewish people never connected that this prophecy of a suffering servant was also to be part of the story of the promised Prince of Peace. They did not understand that the Messiah must die. Jesus himself tried to teach his disciple this on numerous occasions, but the news distressed them. They did not understand. They, they didn't even like the news. And the religious leaders who studied the Scriptures so deeply did not understand this either. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And yet this is precisely why Jesus came. Yes, he came to die. But as I said, the story does not end there. Because the Prince of Peace, the long-awaited Messiah, the, the horn of God's anointed, the one coming from the house of David, had yet another promise concerning him, that he would rise again from the dead. Psalm 16, verse 10, is a prophecy concerning Christ which says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. And remember Hannah? Remember her prayer, the, the messianic prayer? Even within her prayer, there is an allusion to resurrection. She says in verse 6 of her prayer, The Lord kills, and the Lord brings to life. He brings down to Sheol, and he raises up. The Prince of Peace had to die to pay the penalty for sin, to satisfy the wrath of God towards sinners. But he also came to rise again, to take the keys to death and Hades into his hands, to conquer sin, death, and the devil in order to bring perfect shalom. And after the apostles witnessed the resurrected Christ, once they understood the Prince of Peace's mission. They went into all the world to proclaim this good news. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that Jesus himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Jesus is our peace. Jesus made peace. Jesus came and preached peace. And we, therefore, now have peace with God. Paul describes this in Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ has done away with the sin in our hearts that caused our rebellious conflict with God. He has put away the sin that created the chaos in our hearts, and He has filled us up with His righteousness and justifying faith. But Jesus, the Prince of Peace, does much more. 
He is not finished. His work is not done. He gives us the peace of God by guarding our hearts and minds with His peace. Jesus promised He would do this in John 14 when He says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Jesus speaks these words because our peace is not rooted in earthly rulers or earthly prosperity. Our peace is rooted in Christ and in what he gives. Philippians 4, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This peace is a gracious gift to us pilgrims here on earth. We are besieged by stressful schedules, strained relationships, falling economies, and the seemingly inescapable invasion of text messages, phone calls, emails, and social media notifications. The world would seek to rob us of our peace. It would seek to give us false peace, yet the Prince of Peace himself guards you and bids not to worry about anything. Jesus does not call us to be Stoics. He does not call us to be naively happy-go-lucky towards what we suffer, but rather he calls us to ground ourselves entirely in him, in his goodness, in his provision. We can experience a peace that truly surpasses all understanding. And yet, even then, the Prince of Peace is not done. He will not rest until he has fully restored his creation to perfect shalom. Just as we cannot begin to fully fathom the glory of God, we cannot even begin to fully fathom the peace that awaits us. Perfect wholeness, perfect completeness, perfect absence from war and conflict perfect and permanent freedom from chaos and disturbance. Just as the world was before the fall, the world shall be again. But that world to come will exist in a greater, more glorious degree than the one before, because God will dwell with man in true perfect peace. One day we will sing with the angels, glory to God in the highest, And along with them, we will understand the full degree of the goodness of God's glory because our new bodies will be made whole, complete, and able to stand within the radiance of God's glory. All of this Jesus accomplished for us, the Prince of Peace accomplished by his death and resurrection. Jesus, the Son of God and Mary, came to dwell with man by taking on flesh. He removed the curse and guilt of sin by dying and rose again to restore us to God forever in that perfect peace. And so, to conclude, I ask you again, what kind of peace were the angels singing of? How could we even begin to distill all that we have seen in the scriptures concerning the peace that is given to us? How can we begin to describe the greatness of the promised Prince of Peace and the bountiful blessings he brings? I began with a confession. I'll end with another. I confess that I do not have the words to summarize how beautiful of a peace we have in Christ. But I do know this. 
that apart from Christ, there is no peace. Apart from Christ, you will die in your sins. Apart from him, you will suffer the eternal wrath of God. You see, the religious rulers crucified Jesus because they feared the Romans would take everything away. Eventually, the Romans did anyway. But ultimately, they lost everything because they died in their sins. They rejected the Prince of Peace. And so to those who are listening, know this, that those who choose the Pax Mundi, the peace of the world over the Pax Christi, the peace of Christ, will return to the dust of the earth. Those who choose the rulers of this world over the kingship of Christ will remain under the power of sin, death, and the devil. And those who do not believe that Jesus, the descendant of David, has ascended to the right hand of God the Father, they will remain in the eternal dark chaos of hell. But this morning, we have heard the ways that make for peace. We have heard the heralded message of the angels. We heard their song. We've heard the good news of the Prince of Peace. So believe. Believe that Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, the Son of God incarnate, was born of the Virgin Mary in Bethlehem, the city of David. Believe that he paid for your sins with his death and purchased your new life with his resurrection, and you will be saved. You will be forgiven, and you will experience the beautiful, perfect peace of Christ and join with the host of angels and all the faithful, praising and adoring God forever. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we, we desperately desire to know you better, to understand the greatness of your glory, and to understand the greatness of your peace. Please, Father, work in our hearts. Make us alive to you and your righteousness that we may experience your peace and give glory to you through Jesus Christ our Lord, the Prince of Peace himself, in whose name we pray. Amen.